This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program, we all have this incessant desire to make this world a better place. And I think SDGs are exactly the tools that we need to do that. If nothing else, the SDGs have given us a common vocabulary and a common framework. And I think that is very powerful in its own right. They are ambitious and clearly unachievable in terms of the framing of the wording in the targets. I don't think that's necessarily a problem. I think accountability is also, if everyone's in the tent now, because the SDGs are universal, is everyone being held to the same standards? Well, hello, everybody. Um, Welcome to Inside Geneva. And for those who are not actually present in the room and who are listening, we're in a room and we've got a live audience. So that's the first really positive thing to say about today's program, that instead of all virtual and online, we've actually got real people, panelists in the flesh, and we're going to talk about the sustainable development goals. Our guests today, four experts in this field, next to me, Claire Somerville of the Graduate Institute, where we are, in fact, I should have said that, that's where we are today. Um, And you are Director of the Centre of Gender Studies. Next to Claire, Martin Gutmann, who is from the University of Lucerne, also a specialist in the SDGs and currently writing and editing a book about them, the history of them and their historical context. Then, Mukta Dere, student here at the Graduate Institute and you are head of the Um, coordinator of the Advancing Development Goals Contest, which we're going to hear about in this program. And finally, Frederick Perron-Walsh, fellow also here at the Graduate Institute, originally a lawyer in international law, but you're a specialist in environment as well. So a very broad field of expertise. Quick reminder, um, in case... Some people out there don't know. What are the sustainable development goals? Well, they're everything, actually. Every aspiration you could ever have is in the sustainable development goals. So adopted by the UN, there are 17 of them. Everything from the right to good health, gender equality, good environment, education, zero hunger, zero poverty. I could go on, but I'm going to let our panelists do that. Martin, I'm going to start with you because I'd like to have some historical context. This incredibly ambitious aspiration might surprise some people, but actually, in terms of human history, it's not entirely new, is it? Uh, I suppose uh, it is not. And perhaps just to take a step back first um, and, and describe in greater detail what it is that I have looked at in my research You know, there's the shorter history of the SDGs, the policy history, how they emerged. If we go back to 1972, they emerged from the UN Conference on the Human Environment. But long before that, of course, all of these domains that the SDGs uh, deal with have accompanied humans for centuries. And so in this book that I co-edited with uh, colleague Dan Gorman from the University of Waterloo in Canada, and Claire is one of the contributors here sitting next to me, uh, we tried to tell this backstory to each of the 17 SDGs, the relevant historical context to each of them. 
And of course, there's a lot of insights that you can draw from history. There's inspiring examples, as you suggest. One of my favorite ones is the construction of the Erie Canal in 1825. When the governor of New York State proposed this canal, everybody thought he was crazy. It wouldn't be feasible to build. It wouldn't be economically viable. Uh, But it is only a small exaggeration to say that its construction entirely changed the fortunes of New York City, making it a hub between the interior of the continent and the rest of the world. But there's, of course, other historical insights as well. I think one of many important trends is to recognize that what we mean by sustainability and what sustainable living can look like has really been homogenized or westernized in the last 200 years. I think that's also a very valuable insight looking forward. Very interesting point. But the, the Erie Canal, Manhattan, well, as it is now, was an unpopulated island. The Erie Canal made it Donald Trump's playground. Well, thank you. Um, Claire, I know you wanted to come in on the historical context, but also with a, a gender perspective. Yes, absolutely. In looking at the historical context of, of where we are with this SDG Goal 5 and its nine targets, what I looked back on was the history in the global space of where gender and uh, the quest for gender equality really was seeded. And what we find is is a very long history, often fraught history, um, and one that ebbs and flows with what's happening in the globe, conflict and war, uh, recession, and of course now the global pandemic. So the question for me looking at this history has been to what extent can uh, a global political effort really drive changes in inequities and particularly gender inequities? And I think one of the important things to note is these are very much systemic inequities. They're not just about gender, but I'm, I'm going to focus just a little bit as an example on gender. So just looking back of the 100 years or so, we can see that the feminist movement and women's movements have been integral to pushing forward on the global agenda, that without those activists on the streets from Egypt to India, from China to the Americas throughout the early part of the 19th century, we may not have got as far as we did which seems surprising even though we live in a world where we have no country with gender equality. But the starting points of the early part of the the, um, 20th century are really quite significant. In terms of that UN system, I think they are particularly important in that they often accompanied issue convergences. So in the interwar period, we see the establishment of Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, for example, headquartered here in in Geneva, which is an organisation of women dedicated to sustainable peace. From that, we see the 1919 Paris Peace Process, where, in fact, a women's charter was presented. One of the interesting things, um, perhaps disappointing things about that charter, looking now through the SDG lens, is that one of the key... um, recommendations in there was the elimination of the trafficking of women and girls, which Mm -hmm. of course is something that appears also as a target in the SDGs. Um, And I think that really illustrates the stubbornness of some of these processes to get us through. Thank you both Martin and Claire for the historical perspective. Mukta and Frederick, let me bring you in first Mukta, because we've heard of 
great strivings in the past for human improvement. How do you see it from the younger generation's point of view? We have these 17 very ambitious goals, some of which have actually been goals, albeit written in a different form, for over a century. Are you heartened or are you impatient? (laughs) Um, All right, so I will begin by saying that um, we all have this incessant desire to make this world a better place, right? And I think SDGs are exactly the tools that we need to do that. And what's unique about these goals is that you don't need to be a successful or powerful or intellectual person necessarily to bring about this change, but you just have to play your own role. So um, I think it's been a long way since the MDGs. We have seen a lot of change and for the good. Uh, We have seen unprecedented solidarity during the pandemic uh, with local support networks. We have seen um, the youth taking to the streets uh, with Fridays for Future. Uh, We've seen growing um, social media activism and raising awareness and just people around us trying to make sustainable choices. So it's not all on the downside. And you will say, hey, not another Gen Z speaking. Um, But I don't think that sustainable development goals are overambitious. I think all we need is the willingness to change. Sustainability is all about universal inclusive and intergenerational justice. And I think if we're talking about the future, we're talking about the youth, right? So I think it's high time that we need to take us seriously and take our views into consideration because our future is at stake. So we have a personal interest there. And I'm not saying this just as a youth representative, but also as a coordinator for the Advancing Development Goals Contest, hosted by the Graduate Institute, where we are right now. And we receive approximately 100 solid projects every year. And these are not just ideas up in the air, but they're well-thought, sustainable, implementable projects. And If you think about it, it's just one year that we receive 100. Over the last eight years, we have received 800 new ideas to make this world a better place. And this is just one student contest. And there are so many brilliant minds at work all over the world. So I think that there is definitely no room for pessimism. There is definitely need for change. And we need to be better at rejecting the business as usual and willing to change our systems and ways of life. Thank you very much. I mean, that's really inspiring what you say and very heartening um, as a younger generation, full of energy, full of a certain amount of optimism. So I don't want to pour cold water on it, but I am going to play devil's advocate a little bit and bring you in, Frederick, because your focus is the environment. And Mukta there mentioned Fridays for Future. And you could say that these young people are demonstrating on the Fridays for Future, not because there's a great movement to make the world a better place, but because we're heading towards a a really damaged planet. Now, put that in the context of the Sustainable Development Goals for us. Do you share Mukta's optimism? They are actually fighting for for a better future and that at present we are... It's not that somehow we're... we're, uh 
separate from future generations. Right now, where every day when you wake up, you're actively contributing to making the planet a worse place in the sense that you're emitting carbon dioxide, you're consuming natural resources. Maybe the best you can do and maybe try and feel good about it in the society is to recycle. That's your token action to contribute to the, the sustainable consumption and production SDG 12 goal that you know we're all supposed to be entering into a circular economy and that things are getting better because now these big corporations are helping us. So I think uh, we do have to be careful. I, I think there is room for optimism. I think there are our only hope in the sense that it's incredible that states even agreed to these goals and we're backsliding and we have to continue to insist on the goals being met or at least that we have sufficient ambition to keep going. Uh, that not, oh, I, there's been a pandemic and we all have to give up now and do something else. Well, I'm go we're going to come to the pandemic in a moment um, or we can come to it right now if you like. But Martin, um, just going back to this, you, you have this historical perspective. I mean, Frederick said there it's amazing that states even signed up to these SDGs, but, you know, it's quite easy to sign up to things, isn't it? It's actually doing it. I mean, the MDGs, remember them? I mean, they have not actually been achieved. Is this just too easy for states to say, oh, look, we're doing it, but there's a quite a lot of lip service going on? I would definitely second what Claire said earlier, that um, you know, states often take the final formalizing steps in solution paradigms, but the pressure to do so has often come from the bottom up, from activists, transnational networks, concerned citizens. Uh, but of course, it, it takes both. And so I think states have an important role to play, and many of them are stepping up. I also have a little bit of this optimism that we heard from Mukta, one of the academic programs I'm involved in uh, at another Swiss university sees civil servants from around the world come together to learn about um, sustainability and also to exchange ideas. And one of the things that always inspires me is that consistently all of them are entirely fluent in the SDGs, in the targets, in the indicators. So if nothing else, the SDGs have given us a common vocabulary and a common framework. And a yardstick. And, yes, absolutely. And I think that is very powerful in its own right. Claire, these gaps, though, that we're supposed to be closing, some of them are getting wider. And women, particularly, now we could perhaps talk a little bit about the pandemic. According to the ILO, it's women who are coming out worst in terms of earning less, more of them losing jobs. I think um, globally we have seen the impact on the, of the pandemic having a detrimental uh, effect on, on women across the globe. Probably one of the most shocking areas of this is gender-based violence, violence against women, which we've seen in virtually every country around the globe which had lockdowns. So yes, it has put particular pressures in areas of education as well, girls' education, which is one of those intransigent problems around, uh, around the world, with still um, two-thirds of the adult illiterates being women. So we know that with the pandemic, this has also been exacerbated. But I do think there's one target in the, um, the gender SDG that we may have made gains on, at least I hope we have, and that's the one on enabling technologies. We all know that technologies have leapfrogged during this pandemic. The extent to which that may be a gain, a dividend for women, we're yet to see. But I'm relatively hopeful 
that there are people who can listen to this podcast, for example, at their own leisure, women who are doing other things perhaps, and we know about the unpaid work that they engage in, but can also listen to a podcast or participate from home in some way. So I think maybe on that one target, we will be able to measure even some advancement. Well, that's heartening, and indeed, obviously, I would encourage anybody, anyone of whatever gender, to listen to our podcast. Mukta, when you are in contact with these students for advancing the development goals, and as you said, they come in with amazing projects, really workable, doable projects, is there a sense from them that the pandemic is going to slow things down or is there more a sense no we just have to get on with it i think it's a good mix of both most of the solutions that we received this this year were centered around the pandemic they definitely took the pandemic in the mix and tried to find their way around it and it definitely depends from context to context because we get solutions and we get participation from all over the world from all the continents so it is really interesting to see how context matters uh, when it, when you when you think of a real world problem and um, when when you're um, looking for a solution uh, to it um, uh, the networks matter the the way that things work in that particular context uh, matters. And since we're talking about challenges in achieving these sustainable development goals, I would like to take what Martin said earlier um, about the Western concept of sustainability and how we really need to decolonize the notion of sustainable development because it's usually framed as the global south needing help or needing to be saved by an external savior. Well, even though I come from a country from a global south and there are definitely a lot of core problems plaguing the development sector, but I think there are a lot of organic, traditional and indigenous ways that we can tackle these problems with. I can give you a simple example here of the Dabbawalas of Mumbai back in India. This is a highly efficient homemade tiffin delivery system across the city. They deliver tiffins in these stainless steel containers, which also ensures elimination of waste altogether and nutrition. It provides nutrition to the working class and also touches upon the gender aspect because these are women who are, you know, making these tiffins at home. So uh, sometimes I think we need to really take into consideration this universality of that SDGs give us and build on this vision uh, and uh, create spaces where we can interpret sustainability differently according to the context which we are looking at. Okay, Frederick, I saw you nodding during that. I'm interested in the response to the suggestion of interpreting sustainability differently, the idea of decolonizing these concepts, because particularly from the environmental focus, we're coming up to COP26. And again, this is going to be possibly another summit in which the usual faces dominate. And yet the decisions there are having a, a sustainable climate seriously underpins all the sustainable development goals, doesn't it? 
I would say what's most significant about the sustainable development goals in this context is that it has taken that first step to decolonizing development in the sense that they're universal. And so as a universal set of guiding ambitions, they apply to everybody and all of the targets apply to everybody. And whether some states interpret certain targets as being less applicable to them is ultimately state practice. And I don't approve of that practice. I don't think that that's how they should respond to the sustainable development goals. But if you take a look at the SDGs, SDG 13 does defer to the Climate Change Convention as being the relevant forum. So it's also not just a a target and the SDGs being soft policy, but specifically saying the SDGs are adopted and SDG 13 on climate change is adopted, noting that the principal forum for the resolution of our common climate crisis is the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So speaking of COP26, I think we're really facing tremendous challenges. I think one of the big battles is essentially over the financialization of nature and moving towards a saying we have insufficient finance, somebody needs to come and save us, and those are hedge funds. And why don't they provide us with a whole lot of voluntary carbon credits that they can provide to Shell, and Shell can then attempt to sell you net zero gasoline, which they've now been forced to stop by the Dutch courts. But they were advertising that because they have some plan to be net zero by 2050. You can buy zero carbon fuels. But that's not how offsetting works. So it's also the the challenge that we face with homogenizing language where we all share the same language. There's a lot of nonsense going on. And I heard someone say on this very stage that will remain nameless that they were supporting SDG3 because they were promoting mindful snacking as a principle. And so that they could continue producing unhealthy foods like chocolate bars and various other sugary, bad-for-your-health products, so long as the consumer is mindful in their consumption of that product, shifting the, the responsibility onto the consumer for being responsible in mowing down this chocolate bar. And if they aren't responsible, well, the company clearly can't be held accountable for that. And so I think accountability is also, if everyone's in the tent now, because the SDGs are universal, is everyone being held to the same standards? That is a huge question. I'm just reflecting on the kind of areas we've touched on so far in this discussion. And I'm beginning to think these things are so huge and so trying to be all things to all people that maybe they are. I mean... Who owns them? Who decides, right, we've achieved this? What does achievement look like? I think it's, they are ambitious and clearly unachievable in terms of the framing of the wording in the targets. I don't think that's necessarily a problem because we need to make progress on all of those towards those aspirations. So the point there being that they keep people on board, on the agenda, and motivated forwards. And I think when you hear people like Mukta speaking with that sort of huge enthusiasm, that, that they do give a compass, they give a direction of the globe, that we, are, we can work together on joint transnational projects that are of human concern. And if that is all they do, I think that's in itself a good step in the right direction even though the the measuring of these targets is an endlessly 
tedious um, and problematic process. It, it's a whole field unto its its own. And but but perhaps that making visible of those that data is not quite as important as the fact we're in the process and we are progressing in some way and talking about these global issues. Should we decide that some are more important than others? Should we say that? Maybe there's just a couple, given the challenges that we have right now with the pandemic. I mean, I can hear some government leaders already saying this. Oh, well, we've had this terrible thing happen and we've had to spend a lot of money on it. We could only do a couple of these, really. Martin, what do you think? Is that, are some more important than others? I don't think so. I think that's the easy way out. I think these problems are interlinked by nature and they can only be solved through such an approach. You know, for a long time, economic development and sustainability were seen as incompatible. I think under certain models of economic de uh, development, they certainly are. But I think there's a lot of exciting uh, research and also practice um, in trying to bring the two together, uh, as well as uh, all of the social political issues that are also integrated into the SDGs. So I say, no, they are all a priority. Mukta? I think if there is one SDG that I have to pick over the others is SDG 17, which is Partnership for Goals. Partnership to achieve all the 16 uh, previous goals. And I think the pandemic has definitely deepened the existing inequalities. And we need more collaborations. We need North-South cooperation. We need local, global, regional collaborations, intergenerational collaborations. And I think, yeah, it's all about working together. And coming back to the point that you were saying that if all of these are overambitious or they're macro, yes, they're huge notions and huge appeals. But I personally look at it as they're micro. We can dissect them into smaller actions and smaller choices and go from there. What about you, Frederick? If you had to choose one SDG, I mean, we see Mukta has chosen the 17, which includes all the other 16, <laughs> basically. What about you, Frederick? Um, I'm of a similar mindset as Martin, given that uh, I think that we really need to recommit and double, triple, quadruple uh, our commitment, take our commitment an additional order to a magnitude greater than it is now to actually achieve some of these goals, we're really far away. We had an assessment under the Biodiversity Convention recently that said we have 10% of current resources to, let's say, solve the biodiversity crisis. 70 billion out of 700 billion annually is currently being allocated. We're looking at something similar with the... I don't know that we have a clear number as to how much it's going to cost to solve climate change, but we know that we're having a hard time mobilizing $100 billion a year. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry to say, but uh, if we're talking about partnerships, then I think we need to start having partnerships with the people who are holding, you know, $24 trillion of money, which is essentially in private hands. And, uh, you know, the global economy is massive. These amounts sound large to you and me who are, you know, the peasant class, but, like, there are people with real money out there. I saw one giving a a speech at the high-level segment of the uh, first part of COP15, where there's this fine gentleman in French cuffs giving a small little video statement, and he works for a company that manages $1.7 trillion in assets in France. So he's letting us know what real people with the big boy pants on, what they really do, and why don't they let us know 
what people with real money are doing. And then it's like, well, you're clearly kind of just nibbling around the edges, and the majority of your investments are very bad. And uh, if we look at some of the economic recovery funding, for example, from, from states, about 80% did not go to a green recovery. 20% went to clean energy. And the other 80% in Canada, for example, it largely went to propping up the oil sands to make sure they don't collapse during an economic catastrophe. And they've got to shut down. People can't work. They're working in these giant trucks. You've got to have drivers. You've got to have a lot of people out in barracks in the boreal forest in you know, northwestern Canada. And you can't be doing that. And, uh, and so they really got hurt. And so the Canadian government came in and bailed them out. Um, and that's not... No. That's not aligning funding towards achieving the SDGs. And we have people with the great talk, and then it's like, well, why are you reducing taxes? You need to implement this OECD treaty on you know, at least a global minimum tax of 15%. Where are you going to find the money for the SDGs? How about you start taxing people? Well, you know, tax and government leaders and how <laughs> well word, they get on. It's a dirty <laughs> word. Let's not forget that some of these trillionaires you mentioned it, seem to be spending their money sending commercial rockets with their friends on, into space. I mean, that's, yeah, that's my addition to this conversation <laughs> at the moment. Um, we have reached the point where we're going to allow you guys to talk, should you want to. I'd be very interested if anybody's got... Any reaction to what they've heard so far? Are there SDGs that any of you would prioritize? How do you think the UN's leadership on the SDGs is going? Thank you very much. Um, my name is Benjamin Syme. I'm uh, with the, the World Food Program, and, and I just would like to, to speak to the SDG 2. Um, currently, we're seeing 41 million people on the brink of famine. This is the worst it's been in decades. We are going backwards on this SDG rapidly. A question, because I was thinking that, you know, one of the drivers of this is COVID, but it's also conflict. It's also climate. It's how, how all these factors coming together. So how do we leverage the reboot or the, the massive disruption that COVID has brought into the global system as we did at the end of World War II, to rebuild and create a new framework or new goals or new actions to achieve these goals as we enter the decade of action, because the status quo currently needs to be challenged. Thank you. Very interesting question there from the World Food Programme there, the fact that we have a pandemic and governments are focusing in and aid and development money is shrinking focus on actually getting out there and being aspirational is also shrinking. Who wants to step in here? Frederick? I wanted to, to speak to this comment because I think this language of rebooting or building back better or whatever, whatever this is is actually quite dangerous and I don't like this kind of hype because we don't need to re-anything. Like What we were doing was problematic. So we need to change, like we need a new future. We don't need to re-get back up and, and get back to work. It's like, no, you need to, you got kicked by a zoonotic disease and you're out for a while and maybe take a thought about what you might want to do differently in the future rather than just saying, 
oh, well, we're going backward and therefore we need to stabilize things and we need to stabilize things by propping up the system as it is, like propping up the oil sands with large loans and subsidies or whatever throughout the pandemic. We actually need to progress beyond this point in a totally different direction. We do not need to come back to where we were in, in December 2019. We need to be asking, what do we need for 2030 and 2050? And we're suffering economic shockwaves right now that have definitely not settled. And we, we need to think about what's 2050 look like, what's 2100 look like. Forget what we were doing before. Why don't we bring Mukta in there? I think it's important to, I'm aware that it's important to convert this momentary optimism into something more concrete and maybe converting into a habit and habit formation takes time. In my opinion, it's uh, important to give young people spaces of dialogues and spaces coming up with something and actually giving them the confidence that they can go ahead to change a system. I might sound too optimistic, I know, but I think it's really about the bottom-up approaches, right? It's about engaging community. Uh, It all comes down to us and uh, what we do. And I think um, that's kind of the way forward. Okay, thank you. Well, we're getting close to the end and I wanted to give all of our panellists a chance to look forward for us with the Sustainable Development Goals. I think we kind of learned over the course of this hour that they're very aspirational. They're also very complex. Almost an amorphous bunch of of things that we would all, as we said at the beginning, we would all love to have. But there are very competing interests around how we achieve them and how we measure whether they're achieved. So, Martin, I'd like you to do your summing up first because let's go back to history, bring some of your historical perspective. Does achieving something like these require the people who have the power, which are the political leaders, the governments and the people with money, they really, they do really have to revolutionize their own way of thinking. Is that what it's going to take? Sure. It's going to take a lot of things, but I think we certainly need leadership on the international stage coupled with all of these other things, pressure from below, uh, exchange of information, experts speaking to one another, as well as individuals on the street. So there is a certain absence of global leadership right now. Internal politics are, are certainly a complicating factor, but there are many complicating factors. And perhaps to sum up, I share a bit of the... You know, I don't want to label your view, Fred, but, but the, the urgency and, and, and the gloom in this, you know, we are really on a very dangerous trajectory. We're on a cliff edge and simply reimagining a few of our window decorations isn't going to do it. Uh, with that said, there are a lot of instances in history where we have been stubbornly unwilling to change our ways. There are, of course, also lots of examples in which we have, within a matter of one generation, transformed our mindsets and behaviors. And I think we need to look to those examples uh, and we need to pull that off once again. Frederick, can I come to you next? Because I'm I'm going to give the women the last word on this panel. What would you like to see, for example, that would would help us along the way to achieving this and not going backwards, as, as the gentleman from the World Food Programme said? 
I think we need to look at this. I'm going to go back to, to what Martin was saying and a bit of the maybe the philosophy behind this, dragging it back to, to that topic, which is that what we're talking about recalls a very lengthy tradition of uh, planning out utopias, the t utopian tradition and intentional communities. And let's talk about how we're now in a global intentional community. We're no longer having to section ourselves off, and we've got this utopian vision of Agenda 2030, a, an agenda for what people, peace, prosperity, planet, and partnership. This is a utopian vision. Unfortunately, as part of this utopian vision, we have very different components, like the techno-utopian vision, where the MDGs were, were quite centered around this, like we're going to get vaccines for everybody and we're going to give everybody agriculturally uh, or genetically modified crops to enhance agricultural yields. And developing countries came in at Rio Plus 20 and they said, no, we're not going down this path again. We need to interlink everything. And we need to make, take action on everything. This is our only home, and we need to make sure that it's one we can live on. And I view these astronaut billionaires and their goals as being another part of the utopian tradition where they think it's Star Trek and we're going to have a universal confederation of people living on different planets, and this is planet A, and there is a planet B, and there's also a planet C, D, E, F, G... And they're going to be at the, at the root of the expansion of universe-wide civilization. It's actually going to be them who maybe provide the genetic resources for this civilization because they're the finest examples of the human species. So another utopian vision, right? Dystopian, surely. Dystopian. <laughs> utopian for them, dystopian for us. And that's what we need to watch out for. Clear. Not the most heartening words. <laughs> no, um, I, I suppose one of the points I'd like to remind us of is that these are the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And that just last year we celebrated 75 years of the United Nations. Um, so I, and you know, it's built into a whole global political system, going back to the other question about global changes, uh, cycles of politics and electoral cycles. They don't always match up in the same types of ways. But I think um, maintaining some support, I suppose, for another however many years of the United Nations to convene again, perhaps, in 2030, if there is a global appetite for further goal-setting, utopian, I hope, not dystopian, um, that, that it will be, in fact, the youth, it's Mukta's generation, who will be at those tables and making those decisions for us. And I think that's an optimistic and hopeful place to begin. Well, Mukta, I'd like to see you there in, in 2030. How do you see it? It's a final word to you. Well, we have uh, nine more years of tremendous work ahead of us. And I would like to uh, conclude with a quote, and I've read this before, that um, we are never going to have a perfect world, but it's not naive to work towards one. That if you are an activist, then keep fighting for justice, keep building communities of care. If you are an influencer, keep raising awareness and sharing the right information. If you are a wealthy person, invest better. If you are an expert, then bust the myths. Um, and lastly, if you are an individual, just 
pay attention to your choices. And I think if one by one, all of us are able to make the right choices, then this global vision is probably not that far. And I do share your concerns, yes, but I think we will get there one day, probably not perfectly, but in our own way. Well, on that note, thank you all very much, Claire Somerville Martin Goodman, Mukta Dera, and Frederick Perron Walsh, to the Graduate Institute for hosting us. This has been Inside Geneva on the Sustainable Development Goals. I certainly learned a lot. I hope you all found it interesting. Thank you for being here, and thank you to everyone out there who's been listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the programme and check out our previous episodes from a long, hard look at the United Nations, now it's 75, to an account of 10 years of war in Syria to the history of how the international treaties on landmines and on enforced disappearances came about. And coming up in the next few weeks, killer robots are back on the negotiating table in Geneva. Will campaigners succeed in getting a ban? Ahead of the climate summit in November, what outcome do humanitarian agencies hope for? And are we getting humanitarian work wrong? We'll be asking two experts why they think aid needs to be decolonized. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening and do join us again on Inside Geneva. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.